Don't look now, but they are on pace for a double bye in the ACC Men's Basketball Tournament. And it's also where we start in Louisville? That's crazy. You would think so. Right? In Tallahassee, they would think so. By the way, can't afford to lose there or to the team that's also from Florida coming tonight. All things we get to cover right now in part one of... Yep, we're copying this idea. Covering the Commonwealth, a look at the locally interesting teams and stories from the experts who cover them. Let's start with the Virginia Cavaliers. With JerryRatcliffe.com founder and, yes, contributor, along with Scott Ratcliffe and Chris Graham, who also do great work. Jerry, a pleasure to speak with you in the fast lane for the Virginia Cavaliers. It's not pretty, but don't look now. This team is on pace for a double bye. How much of this is Virginia just doing something that most ACC programs are struggling to do, which is just taking care of business? Well, that's a big deal, particularly this time of year, Ed. As you know, we're halfway through the ACC schedule, and the back end is, is never easy because teams are desperate uh, fighting for spots in the tournament or better positions, uh, better seeds, whatever. Um, so, you know, every every night out is, is a tough one. And Virginia's been uh, about as consistent as you would want. They've, they've won six in a row. Three of those were on the road. Uh, have the nation's longest home winning streak uh, up for grabs tonight. Um 22 straight at JPJ against a pretty good Miami team. So, uh, yeah, just taking care of business is, is the priority, the number one order of the day. For Virginia, how much of their ascent to the second to top spot behind North Carolina in the ACC, how much of that ascent is because they've gotten new additions, yes, of Dante Harris and Jordan Minor, but they're also getting more out of role players. And it may not be J.J. Redick part two for a guy like Isaac McNeely, but it's enough where you can, again, not feel like other guys have to be stressed. Well, that's true, and I think, you know, the fact that, that not only has Miner come on as a physical force inside, but he, he's a really good screen setter in that mover blocker offense, something they were missing early, uh, which was making it hard for the three-point shooters to get open. Uh, also, by doing that, Jake Groves uh, no longer has to play the five position, which is not his natural position, so he's moved back out to a stretch four and he's been tearing it up the last three games from the three-point line, and that's going to take some pressure off of McNeely and, and other guys, too. So it all kind of works hand-in-hand. Hand. And, uh, you know, Tony Bennett told us this back in October that the, team you, the Virginia team you see now is not going to be the Virginia team you see in March. Uh, a lot of the fans panicked and... Uh, didn't seem to absorb that, and, and now they're starting to see what Tony Bennett was talking about to begin with. Yeah, it's coming together in a way where you have to feel pretty confident if you're a Virginia fan. This is an interesting Miami team right now. They're just 2-4 and four away from home, although they've had some peculiar losses at home, including Louisville, uh, earlier this year. What do you make of a Miami team where they're talented, but... It varies from night to night, and heck, half to half, as Virginia Tech can attest, whether they put all those parts together. Yeah, I haven't seen Miami a lot this year, but 
Uh, I think they're healthy again. They they apparently played pretty well at Virginia Tech Saturday and are not against uh, not at Tech but against Tech. Um, I, his preparation is a little easier because Virginia and Virginia Tech play similar styles, and so he, prepping for one is like prepping for both. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if how they handle the pack line without uh, Wong, who was their major ball handler last year and shooter. Um, and, uh, you know, Virginia's playing well, so um, it, it should be a really good game. I, all the all the Miami and Virginia games seem to be close games, uh, so I, I'm, I expect this to be another thriller dealer. Jerry, it's always a thrill when we get your insight and analysis at jerryratcliffe.com. Hootie, you mentioned that the thriller potentially tonight against Miami. We will wrap it up with this thought and this theory from Virginia, but how much does their style of play help them in this spot where they're coming off a game that's physical at Clemson on the road on a tight turnaround, but they at least get a Miami team that's on the road as well? Well, Virginia's played very physical the last uh, four, five, six games. If you talk to the opposing coaches, that's one of the things they always point to and that they're having trouble matching Virginia's physicality, which was a weakness early, but it's turned into a strength. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if Miami can respond to that as well because I, I don't think Miami is the most physical team in the league for sure. Hootie, a pleasure to get your insight as always. Thank you so much, and we look forward to chatting again in another week. Yes, sir, Ed. We'll see you next week. Now to the Virginia Tech Hokies. Hokey, hokey, hokey high. David Cunningham of TechSideline.com. David, how much are the Hokies shaking their heads still after a week where the phrase missed opportunities seems to be the most operative? Hey, Ed, great to be with you. Yeah, it's it's kind of in that week for Virginia Tech, or at least it was last week. The Okies had a, a big chance to get a Quadrant 1 win at home uh, against a Duke team that they had beaten five of the last six times in Castle Coliseum, and they couldn't win. They, they played them, played Duke close for the majority of the game, but, but couldn't quite get over that hump. And then they go down to Miami. They have another Quadrant 1 win game and they led with about five minutes to go by five points and they let that one slip away and and that one was more of a a fault of turnovers and just not really being able to hold on to the lead very well in a bunch of different areas this Virginia Tech team had a lot going for it and um, I think Tech was squarely on the bubble had an opportunity to really uh, make some moves forward uh, heading into last week and then a, a loss on Big Monday against Duke in a game that you know, you're know you playing in front of a sold-out Castle Coliseum and you've got the crowd behind you and uh, this is a Duke team that, that might be looking ahead a little bit to North Carolina. Duke was just that much better. And then the Hokies go on the road to a Miami team that they almost beat in Castle Coliseum without Hunter Couture and they led for the majority of the game. I would argue they were the better team. And they end up losing that game because they turned the ball over. They get killed on the glass. Just a just a bad night all around, uh, especially towards the end of the game. So you know what what could have been two big games, two big wins for Tech ended up being two bad losses, and um, not not bad losses in the sense of you know they're going to kill Tech's resume, but that in a sense 
Virginia Tech has so few opportunities left to really turn the season around now. Well, not only that, but this is an ACC, David, that is not all that strong. And because of that, you mentioned the phrase missed opportunities, but how much do those loom large for Virginia Tech, knowing that the Iowa State win is great, but it seems like that's the only win on which they can hang their hat unless maybe they beat Virginia at home and then get some help in the tournament as well? Yeah, I think there aren't many opportunities, period. And when you don't take advantage of the ones you have, that's why they're called missed opportunities. Uh, I thought Andy Bitter, uh, who helped us cover that game last Monday against Duke, put it pretty plainly. You know, great, you've got a win over Oklahoma State that happened all the way back in November. Uh, who else do you have on your schedule? And frankly, nobody else uh, that Virginia Tech could beat right now outside of North Carolina would really have the pull of a Duke. And North Carolina is playing at, elite, at an elite level that I don't think anybody else in the ACC is going to be able to catch at all. So it, it's not a really good situation for Virginia Tech right now. Uh, Tech, Tech has its back against the wall uh, with a handful of games to go. And I, I think Tech will probably end up you know, winning a, a handful down the stretch. But the problem is, are any of them going to be enough of, of enough quality. The Hokies could beat Virginia and Castle Coliseum, and uh, honestly, I would not be surprised if they do, considering they played very well this year at home, and, and that was a close game in John Paul Jones Arena uh, a couple weeks ago. But at the same time, it doesn't really matter if you beat Virginia if, if Virginia is not a Quadrant 1 win, does it? And at this point, the Cavaliers, you know, it's probably going to take a little bit of a long shot for the Cavaliers to get in the top 30 of the net. So, it's it's a numbers game in a way, and Virginia Tech hasn't exactly played that very, very well. No, they really played the opposite side of that, particularly in the second half of games as David Cunningham is with us here in the fast lane. David, we will pivot away from that, though, to Virginia Tech's women's basketball team. Two different kinds of rivalries, Virginia at home, on the road at North Carolina, what does this past week say about this team's ability to stay focused in rivalry games, even when it may not always be pretty? Yeah, well, I think the, the women's game uh, against Virginia was pretty interesting because Virginia Tech's Elizabeth Kitley and Georgia Amor took over. They combined for about 53 points. They had more field goals, they had 23 field goals, two more than Virginia's entire team. That kind of tells you the state of Virginia Tech and Virginia women's basketball programs, respectively, at the current stage of time. That's why they're two All-Americans. Uh, Georgia Amor and Elizabeth Kitley did, did, did their things that they usually do, and, and you know, Virginia Tech won that. That was it, it, their fourth straight win and then they went on the road and beat North Carolina yesterday and that's a, that's a game where these two teams have met so many times in the Kenny Brooks era partially more than a, a lot of other programs maybe any other ACC program because of meeting in the ACC tournament and because of other teams not opting out or, sorry other teams opting out North Carolina not like like Duke and Virginia both did during that COVID year that was the 11th time Elizabeth Kitley had played for uh, North Carolina, and the Hokies are nine and two in those games. They are awfully good against the Tar Heels. And uh, Ed, you mentioned how ugly it was yesterday. Not a pretty win by any means, but Virginia Tech impressed me on the defensive end because of how well it was able to stay focused and continue to get stops even when the shots aren't falling. 
Okie shot 34%. Carolina shot 32%. But Virginia Tech did all of the little things it needed to win. It defended the fire out of the Tar Heels. I was so impressed by that defensive performance. I know Deja Kelly was 6 of 24 from uh, from the field. Yes, she scored 13 of 14 from the foul line, but Carolina didn't really have anything going from the floor. That's how good the Hokies were. At the same time, they out-rebounded Carolina by 12, 52 to 40. All of that came all of that big margin came in the second half. They did everything they needed to do down the stretch to win, and at, at, at some point it was kind of just a matter of is Virginia Tech going to hit enough shots to win this game? Because Tech was doing everything well in all the other areas, and Tech did. And now, turn the page, because there's another big one coming up on Thursday. Tech goes to NC State. Uh, that's an 8 o'clock tip. Uh, tar- uh, Wolfpack are, are third in the, in the country. So that's going to be quite quite a good one. Um, and after tonight's game, Virginia Tech could be the uh, top-ranked team in the conference, which tells you how big yesterday's win was. David, a pleasure to hear your voice and your insight in the fast lane. We will look for more of it at techsideline.com and the real DConnay on Twitter and Insta. Appreciate your time as always. Much love to you and yours, and we'll chat again in another week. Appreciate it. Hey, talk to you soon. Thanks for your help. Now to the Liberty Flames. Alan York, the play-by-play voice of the Liberty Flames, who's back with us once again here in the fast lane. AY, I'm sure it was exhausting for you going from east to west in two different stops, but that Flames team, Richie McKay said they were even more exhausted down the stretch, but hung in there and got a much-needed victory Saturday night at UTEP. We know this team's got character, but what did it say about the way they were able to really pull it together? It wasn't pretty, but when they needed to get a win, they found a way to get it done Saturday night. Yeah, first off, thanks, Ed, for having me on once again. Yeah, you're exactly right. This team has been so close, and it's been years since we've even had to talk about Liberty being close to wins in league play. But, hey, let's keep in mind again, folks, a new league. They're learning how to adjust to Conference USA, new officials they haven't seen before, different style of play in this league. They're three and five, and they very well could be five and two, maybe six and one. They've been in so many close games. But I'm sure we'll talk about Shiloh Robinson in a minute. But coming off that emotional loss on Thursday, overtime to Mexico State, how much was left in the gas tank against UTEP? We just showed all those previous tough games. They've learned a lot, and they were able to finish against a UTEP team that was uh, hungry for a win as well. But they did make that three-hour trip back with the tailwind a lot quicker on Saturday night. You mentioned Shiloh Robinson. He took that sucker punch against New Mexico State this past Thursday. Um, You were there. You saw it in real time, and obviously the way it was handled by New Mexico State, including their indefinite suspension uh, of the perpetrator for that. Um, Just, we'll open floor this. We're not looking for a gotcha per se, but I mean, it looked like a cheap shot on, on TV from our perspective. Richie McKay was disappointed. What's the overall mood and sentiment, including around the uh, health of Shiloh Robinson? I think first and foremost, the way the game ended in overtime, uh, you know, you never know when one of your players, uh, your teammates, isn't able to finish a game. How you're going to come out, how you're going to finish the game. But Coach is really proud on how his team uh, huddled around Shiloh and really played hard for him even a couple of days later in that UTEP game. But uh, Shiloh, fifth-year senior, uh, he's played a lot of basketball for Liberty. How he handled the situation, he met with 
you know, uh, Patrick Carpenter after the game, and uh, they, you know, exchanged what they needed to say to each other, uh, got an apology from all parts, but there's no part for what happened in the game of basketball, so we're going to move on from it, but Coach is really proud how his team uh, really responded, and for Shiloh, uh, he looked good the next day. You'd think he'd have two black eyes or what have you, but he doesn't even look like uh, whatever happened to him did happen, so uh, but he was back on the stationary bike the next day. You know, didn't play Saturday. Uh, don't know his status for Thursday against uh, Middle Tennessee. But I uh, texted with him today, and uh, he said he's feeling pretty good. So uh, all signs are positive with him moving forward. That's a good thing for the Liberty Flames, who will now have two at home on Thursday and Saturday, AY. For this team, they get back home. Um, how do they manage the rest part of it, coming off of a, a physical two games, not to mention all the travel that you you discussed a moment ago? Yeah, we were on the bus on the way to the airport in El Paso after the game on Saturday, and a lot of the guys were curious talking to trainer Aaron Schreiner uh, as he was making his way up and down the, the walkway of the bus of, hey, what should we do when we get back? Because we landed – it was about 3.30 local time in Lynchburg when we touched down Sunday morning. And he said, look, you need to take a nap. If you get tired during Sunday, take a nap. And when you wake up, you might not feel like going to sleep at like 9.30, 10 o'clock because it's going to feel like 7, 7.30. But he said, you need to go to bed earlier than you would expect, even if you're not tired, to get readjusted to the time zone. So that's what they did. I don't can't imagine they worked out on Sunday. Uh, maybe got some shots up, but I'm sure they'll start their prep knee-deep probably today or I know by tomorrow uh, for Middle Tennessee come Thursday. AY, thank you for your time today, and we'll keep it locked to LU Flames Voice, Twitter, and Instagram before we chat again. Thanks, Ed. Have a good afternoon. You as well. Alan York with us here in the Fast Lane. When we return, part two of covering the Commonwealth, Radford, JMU, and NASCAR. Oh, that'll be a blast when we return here in the Fast Lane.